From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Proponents of fossil fuels often describe renewables as unreliable. You have to have the wind blowing, you have to have the sun shining. That's a soon-to-be member of Congress from Colorado. Thing is, the electrical grid's more sophisticated than that description might lead you to believe. Today, CPR's energy and environment editor shines some light. Then, the world's littlest book on climate from Denver 7 meteorologist Mike Nelson. And later, as 2020 winds down, we listen back to some of our favorite interviews with writers, like Colorado Springs poet Nate Marshall on the word finna. I'm finna go to the stove. Yeah, I'm finna go do my homework. It's this like piece of language, right, that is certainly undeniably Black and undeniably like Southern in origin. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Even as fossil fuels make the planet hotter, they're often praised for their reliability. A coal or a natural gas plant can fire up whenever needed. That's been used as an argument against investments in renewables. The reality, though, is more nuanced, says CPR's Joe Wirtz. He is our new climate and environment editor. Hi, Joe. Hey, Ryan. So a few weeks ago, Congresswoman-elect Lauren Boebert was on her show, and she'll be representing a district in Colorado that relies pretty heavily on energy, new and old. And she said something I've heard about renewables a lot over the years. The problem with wind and solar is this is uh, intermittent energy. And so it's really an unreliable energy source because you have to have the wind blowing, you have to have the sun shining. The wind blowing, the sun shining, something I've heard indeed a lot over the years. Is that true anymore? Well, look, I've heard different versions of this same point from people, you know, mostly politicians, but also fossil fuel backers for the decade or so that I've been covering renewable energy. So and it's, it's, it's true, but only in a really narrow sense. Obviously, if a wind turbine isn't turning, it's not producing electricity. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if it's pitch dark outside in the middle of the night or something, and there's no photons hitting a solar panel, you know, no electricity is being generated. But this is an oversimplification of renewable energy and an oversimplification of the modern electricity grid. How so? What do you mean? Well, first off, you know, the wind doesn't have to be blowing all that hard for a wind turbine to make electricity. Most of them only need like six or, you know, six to nine miles per hour of wind. And and cloudy weather, uh, you know, obviously reduces the output of of solar panels, but usually not to zero. A lot of panels can produce up to like a quarter of their output on cloudy days. And the other thing to remember is that Colorado doesn't just get its electricity that's produced here in Colorado, right? The oh. state is connected to a power grid and it produces, you know, this this works in different ways in different parts of the state. So, you know, if it's cloudy in one part of the state, it might not be in another and you can move move this electricity around um, and, and get it to where it needs to be. 
So there is some flexibility, some elasticity in the grid. Listener Chuck Younger of Denver reached out after hearing my interview with Congresswoman-elect Boebert. He was kind of, he was fired up about her (laughs) statement on renewables and encouraged us to highlight what he sees as a promising new technology. That's right. Yeah, I think fired up is a good way to to describe it. Um, He said, look, Boebert was overlooking the science being conducted right here in Colorado, at NREL specifically, in Golden. So we got in touch. My name is Kevin Harrison. I work at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, where I'm a program manager, and I lead the development of power-to-gas initiatives. Harrison and other scientists are racing to figure out technology that can extend the usefulness of renewables. One way to do that is with storage, things like uh, batteries. The problem with wind and solar is they're often active when you don't need them, right? Um, And so batteries give you um, the opportunity and ability to store that power and and save it for when you do need it. Mm -hmm. And battery technology has really come a long way, especially recently. But there are other ways to store electricity that's generated by wind and solar. I take electricity from wind and solar primarily, but there are other renewable electricity sources like geothermal. And um, I take that electricity and I convert it to a different form by splitting water. And it's the same experiment we all did in, in middle school where we split water into its two constituent elements hydrogen and oxygen. And hydrogen is an energy carrier. It can move energy around. H2O. So you use the electricity to convert water into hydrogen. And then what would you do with the hydrogen? You could do a lot with the hydrogen. First off, you can burn it at a a power plant. You can also save it. You can save it, store it, and use the hydrogen to power hydrogen vehicles. There's several benefits in doing this. One, you could replace you know, some of the burning of fossil fuels. When you burn the hydrogen, big benefit is the only waste product you get is water. Uh, And a lot of existing power plants could be reconfigured to burn hydrogen. Um, You can also convert hydrogen into methane. Um, You know, methane is just for hydrogens and and a carbon, which is the main constituent in natural gas. Uh, And we already have, you know, natural gas powered cars and power plants. Um, so we can convert it into, you know, essentially uh, the, you know, natural gas. And, and uh, you know, to do that, Harrison and other scientists at NREL um, are converting it using this single cell organism called, I, I think I'm going to get this right. I think it's Arche- Archaea. Archaea. <laughs> it's, uh, Archaea, right. It's a single cell organism called Archaea. And they use that to, to, to convert it. Fascinating. But if you make methane, natural gas, right. that isn't necessarily very green. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not as green. Uh, methane is a, is, a, is a very powerful greenhouse gas. But if you create methane this way, you can reduce some of the other environmental problems you know, associated with drilling for natural gas, things like fracking, um, a, a lot of issues with that that you can avoid. Okay, this is um, just fascinating because it's, it's beyond battery technology, another way that's right. to extend the life of renewables. It, it might strike people, Joe Wirtz, as sci- <laughs> sci-fi. Are utilities right. actually doing any of these things? Yeah, they are. You know, NREL is uh, leading the way on this. They're ex- experimenting full scale uh, with this stuff um, with some utilities in California. Here in Colorado, 
state's biggest electricity provider, Excel, um, is bullish you know, on this type of tech. Uh, they think it's going to really help renewables um, and help them add renewables to the grid. Yeah, I think power to the gas is really exciting. Yeah, this is Jonathan Edelman. He's the VP of planning at Excel. You know, the ability to burn, um, for example, hydrogen in a power plant and use carbon-free energy to produce that hydrogen, that's a wonderful outcome. It allows us the dispatchable needs that we need. It allows us to turn on and off power plants as our customers need that energy. So, you know, Excel, the utility uh, here in Colorado, they're already using some battery storage and, and they want... Uh, want to add more and have plans to add a lot more. Okay, and there could be this enhancement. Uh, Joe Wirtz, I want to play another clip from my conversation with Congresswoman-elect Boebert. This is an exchange actually about nuclear energy. Her congressional Mm -hmm. district used to be a major uranium hub. And this is something that's always kind of frustrated me when we hear about reducing CO2 emissions or or being carbonless by 2050. Uh, it's just very disingenuous to me because there's no opportunity to explore using uranium uh, to create nuclear energy, which we know is the cleanest uh, form of energy. It's even hard to get something as simple as hydroelectricity classified as a renewable. You see nuclear then as a way to reduce carbon and fight climate change. Do I hear you right? Absolutely. A way to uh, reduce carbon emissions. Yes. You call it the safest form of energy. I think some would push back and say that's maybe solar or wind. Uh, What do you base that that on? Well, it's certainly the cleanest uh, form of energy uh, uranium is. We've come a long way in the production and and just learning um, how to work with uh, uranium and make sure that it is safe. Why don't we unpack some of that, Joe, where it's uh, sure. this idea that nuclear energy might be necessary to move away from fossil fuels for stuff? Yeah, look, this this is a huge debate uh, among policymakers and environmental groups. Um, nuclear has a lot of big upsides and some, you know, pretty big and sometimes scary downsides. Bobert brought up the jobs thing, and it's definitely true that, you know, uh, renewed nuclear uh, effort here in the U.S. could bring jobs to our district and, and, and jobs all along the nuclear su- supply chain. Um, you know, that's from people working in reactors and generation sites to people, you know, working at, at in mines and enrichment facilities and things like that. Um, and, you know, nuclear backers say, look, nuclear technology has really improved. Um, and it's certainly true that a lot of big utilities back the nuclear option. Here's Edelman with Excel again. I mean, nuclear is a great technology. It's uh, extremely reliable. Uh, it's got a great track record. It's carbon-free. So those are all great, uh, great benefits. Um, it comes with some challenges too, predominantly with the long-term storage issues. I think that nuclear probably will play a role in the future. A great track record, he says. Care to share just a few more words <laughs> on that subject? Yeah, I mean. It depends a lot on how you look at that track record. I mean, nuclear uh, has a pretty strong safety record when you look at the amount of accidents they have, um, you know, uh, to the amount of hours that reactors have run. If you look at it that way, there's, you know, only a few accidents, a handful of accidents over tens of thousands of hours of, of, of reactor time. But, you know, there's definitely other issues. There's, there's big hazards and, and environmental hazards and public health and safety hazards um, that can be scary and can can definitely be catastrophic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Fukushima in, in 2011, the mm-hmm. accident um, there in Japan. Uh, 
again, nuclear backers say this is uh, this can be fixed and managed with modern reactors. But you know, a, a pressing and current uh, safety question with uh, with nuclear power is what to do with all the waste, right? Uh, we still don't have an agreement on where to store this stuff. That's what Edelman was referring to is this long-term storage. That's a problem here in the U.S. and a big political and, and, and practical barrier to, to accelerating any nuclear rollout um, in the United States. Well, I, I appreciate this, Joe Wirtz, and I thought we might just take a moment to kind of introduce you to our audience, which we may not actually need to do. Uh, so you, you, you are our new climate and environment editor, but folks may have heard you uh, for years on NPR. You were mm-hmm. an editor and reporter in Oklahoma and filed often from there. Before this, uh, immediately you were an investigative reporter at the Center for Public Integrity covering climate and environment. Do you have like a favorite story or area of coverage within this beat that you're really passionate about? Boy, on the energy side, uh, you know, I, I, I covered a lot of, uh, of oil and gas in Oklahoma, as, as, as you might expect, uh, covered um, pretty aggressively the earthquakes linked to oil and gas production um, there in Oklahoma, the science behind that and, and sort of the slow, slow rolling of regulations to, uh, to, to curb those earthquakes. That's been uh, a lot of uh, uh, focus that, you know, I've been proud of, but, you know, at, at the Center for Public Integrity, I did a lot of work with it, with agriculture and, and, you know, farming um, and, and getting out and talking to farmers um, and, 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 you know, talking about how they grow and what they grow and what that means for our environment and climate. So, um, yeah, pr- proud of both of those things and excited about it and, you know, excited to bring some of that here with the team, um, at, at Colorado public radio, we got a great team and man, we've got some aggressive, um, really interesting, uh, ideas and, and some great reporters covering it. I just hired a third reporter. So, um, oh, that's really exciting. looking forward to hitting the ground running. Joe Wirtz, CPR's climate and environment editor. Climate science shouldn't be intimidating, says Denver 7 meteorologist Mike Nelson. It's why he's written the world's littlest book on climate, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes About CO2. And Mike, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to be with you. Why don't we skip right to fact three in your book, quote, it's us, as in the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is indeed caused by people burning fossil fuels for energy. And we know this because science can show us where carbon comes from. It's almost like there are carbon fingerprints. Will you explain that? Well, everybody's probably fairly familiar with carbon dating, which is a way that uh, archaeologists can determine how old a, an artifact is or a bone, etc., by certain trace amounts of uh, radioactive carbon. We can do a very similar thing with uh, carbon that comes from old plants. In other words, things that would be fossil fuel, oil, coal, natural gas. And when that is uh, burned and released into the atmosphere, we can actually trace that flavor of carbon and know that it's not from volcanoes. It's not from other uh, natural sources. It is from digging up fossilized carbon and lighting it on fire. And so in that way, when people say, well, of course there's carbon in the atmosphere, there's always been carbon in the atmosphere. It is possible to distinguish certain kinds of carbon from others. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. 
And so we know that the increase that we're seeing is not from any other source than from the uh, burning of fossil fuels. And it's been a dramatic increase in the last 200 years from 280 parts per million to now about 413 parts per million. Let me just real quickly say this, that parts per million, that doesn't sound like much of any of a problem, but if it was carbon monoxide at 413 parts per million in the air, we would be unconscious and close to death. And now carbon monoxide is poisonous, carbon dioxide is not, but the key takeaway there is small amounts do matter. This book, Mike Nelson, is positively pamphlet-like. Why is it needed, do you think? Well, because most people are not going to spend the time to read a textbook about climate change. There are many of them out there, and they're excellent. But our goal with my two co-authors, Dr. Peter Tons and Michael Banks, uh, who is a local environmental writer, was to create something that would be a quick read but give you important facts. So when someone says, well, the climate's always changed, you can say yes, and that's exactly why we know what's happening now. You know, there, there have been some high-profile weather forecasters who reject mainstream climate science. Is that still a reality in your profession? It uh, is shrinking. Uh, what I've found is that the the people that are skeptical of the science are get, continue to get smaller with each year, but that smaller group seems to be yelling louder. And so it still seems like there is a lot of... Uh, of uh, controversy about this. Uh, there have been a few broadcast meteorologists over the last couple of decades that have come out and stated that uh, it's not a problem, but that number has gotten very small. And in fact, uh, I'm a past chairman of the Station Scientist Committee of the American Meteorological Society. Uh, our group of uh, station scientists, which is how we like to pre uh, prefer uh, to be called uh, mm is growing. And a lot of the younger meteorologists, not to just guys like me, but the ones that are in their 30s and 40s, are really getting uh, quite vocal about the science, which is excellent. In this book, The World's Littlest Book on Climate, you talk about the effects of a warming planet, coral die-off, and I think most specific to Colorado, the melting that we see at higher altitudes of both snowpack and ice. Is there a room in a nightly weathercast for that kind of information, you know, beyond the high and low temperature to talk about those bigger trends? Not every single show. I mean, I do four shows a day, five days a week. But uh, when there is something that uh, has come out, maybe at the, you know, the National Snow and Ice Center is right in Denver. And so all of the data on the ice cores, all of the data on the uh, the amount of ice in the Arctic, and they put out reports. And so if we get the annual report coming out, uh, how much the uh, ice cap has melted in the Arctic, uh, that's an easy segue to say, you know, what we're seeing here is consistent with the warming of the planet caused by the increase in greenhouse gases. And what I normally do, Ryan, is then I will say, and you can read more if you'd like to go to my Facebook page or follow me on Twitter. I can give you a lot more information. And now with this little book, hmm. it's very easy to say, and there's a great book that won't take you a lot of time, uh, The World's Littlest Book on Climate, 
available from Amazon. <laughs> See how fast that was? Uh, that was that was elegant, Mike Nelson. You've done this before. Uh, in normal times, you do a lot of in-person school visits to teach kids about weather. You're doing that virtually now, and I, I feel like I really ought to play your tornado dance in which you pretend to be cool air and hot air duking it out and then you start to spin pretty soon these two air masses are really going at it big shoving match going on big thunderstorms build above the shoving match between the two air masses the air in a thunderstorm goes up like smoke through a chimney but it gets to the jet stream zoom whole thing starts to spin big and slow at first and then much like the figure skater, smaller, faster, faster, smaller, and that rotation forms way up in the cloud and drops down to the ground to form the tornado. And that is the tornado dance. <laughs> you're sort of winded at the end of that, and you wear sunglasses when you're the cool air, and then you take those sunglasses off when you're the warm air. Are you starting to focus more on climate change in school visits? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, and a lot of that has been in the last eight years since the birth of my first grandchild and uh, realizing that the changes that we are going to see uh, are obviously going to affect that generation much more than my generation. So I've added climate change into the talk. My school talk is about 45 minutes and I don't spend 45 minutes on thermodynamics and uh, you know, radiative transfer theory, but I spend time about the last five to 10 minutes talking about how carbon dioxide in the atmosphere acts like a blanket, trapping heat from escaping into space, and put it into terms that kids will understand. But the last thing I finish with is I hold up my phone and say, I'm hopeful because we now carry supercomputers Every single day, these phones have the power a supercomputer did 30 years ago, and we carry them around in our hand every single day. Amazing inventions have happened in my lifetime. Even more amazing inventions are going to happen in your lifetime, boys and girls. And you are the people that are going to create those things in the next 20 to 25 years. You're going to be changing the world. And in this book, you compare the challenge and the opportunity of addressing climate change to past moonshots, literal and figurative, uh, the Apollo moon mission, the transcontinental radio, uh, creating the World Wide Web, for instance. Do you run into issues of, of not getting political or trying not to be political in this environment? We, we have just about a minute, Mike. I try not to uh, stray from the science very much, the physical science, if you will, because it's pretty simple. Add heat, get warmer. We know why it's getting warmer. Uh, the political science is a tougher call mm. because that's policy and that's how we all decide, how we come together to figure out how to solve this problem. But you mentioned uh, the Apollo moon mission, the interstate highway project, uh, the transcontinental railroad in the 19th century. Yep. None of those major projects bankrupted our country and every single one of them made our nation and our world a better place. I appreciated that you compared carbon in this book to feathers in a down blanket. We're sort of adding feathers, making the blanket warmer. Uh, thanks so much, Mike Nelson, for your time. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. He is chief meteorologist at Denver 7 and has written the world's littlest book on climate, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes About CO2. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News.
It's the story that dominated the 2020 news cycle. That more than 60 percent of Coloradans back a policy of staying at home to slow the spread of coronavirus. It's not yet reached the number that we need to save lives. And we have hospitals, especially in some of the more remote areas, that are absolutely full right now. Designated to receive the Pfizer vaccine. I'm Leo Gomez and we got the COVID vaccine here for you. The story of the coronavirus pandemic is still being told. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today and tomorrow, we'll listen back to some of our favorite conversations with writers. Wordsmiths can help us process traumatic times, as 2020 has been. Nate Marshall is a poet, playwright, editor, rapper, and assistant English professor at Colorado College. He originally hails from Chicago, and his new collection is called Finna. We spoke in August. And Nate Marshall, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. So glad you could join us. And I know there are a lot of layers to this title, Fitna. Unpeel that onion for us. Fitna is one of these words that I I really love. And I think one of the reasons why it really appealed to me was it's this piece of language, right, that is certainly undeniably Black and undeniably like Southern in origin. And it's also this thing that I think a lot of like Black folks in particular have a sort of relationship with where you know, someone in their life, be it a teacher or an older person in their family was like, oh yeah, that's not a word. Like you can't say that. And so I thought that that reclaiming felt important to me. F-I-N-N-A, use it in a sentence for us. How, w- how would you most often hear Fitna or use it? I'm finna go to the stove. Yeah, I'm finna go do my homework. You've claimed this is a word. In other words, you're a, a literary soul and you're saying... I, I accept this. I welcome this in, yeah. into my circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you know, what does what is a word? A word is like not a thing in the dictionary. The dictionary was trying to uh, to nail down the words that existed, not define what a word is or is not. A word is a thing that communicates meaning. Finna absolutely communicates meaning. You moved to Colorado about a year or two ago uh, to teach. Yeah. English and creative writing at CC. As I said, you're originally from Chicago, which remains integral to your identity and artistry. But I understand you couldn't have written Fitna, you know, which is the combination of fixing two, by the way, just just in case that wasn't clear. Uh, But you couldn't have written this without really the experience of moving to Colorado, that contrast between Chicago and Colorado. Tell, Tell me how that connects to the first poem in the collection, which I'll then have you read. You know, so the first poem in the collection is called Landless Acknowledgement. And, you know, Colorado College, you know, I think, and just in Colorado in general, there's a much more pronounced Indigenous presence than certainly in the Midwest where I'm from. And so a thing that is sort of a common feature of public events at Colorado College, back when public events were a thing, um, (laughs) was the process of like land acknowledgement, right? So saying that the Utes were the sort of original custodians of the land and acknowledging the other peoples who have been a part of like making the area that we now know as the Pikes Peak region or Colorado Springs a vibrant place. And, um, you know, I think that's a really powerful practice. And I, I think one of the existential questions of that identity is, is place, right? Is like, well, where in this country do we fit? Where do we have a home? And for, and even beyond this country, right? Because like, the nature of being someone that originates from folks who were part of the transatlantic slave trade is like, we have no sense of our 
place of origin and, and have no way to to really have a real sense of that thing. Yeah, so if if there's an acknowledgement of what came before us in Colorado, that's an acknowledgement of the indigenous peoples and lands. And you're saying, what do you do if you are, to some extent, landless? And so that's the setup to landless acknowledgement. And uh, Nate Marshall, go ahead and read this really gorgeous poem. Thank you. Landless acknowledgement. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge that we live on some unseated bones. Sometimes me and mine imagine ancestral homes. All I got so far is Montgomery, Alabama. Maybe a boat, maybe a plot of land somewhere so far from the south sides I've claimed that I would get lost on the way. I admit sometimes my homies talk about their families immigrating and I get jealous. We lost the land we were custodians over before I was a twinkle in the eye of a twinkle in the eye of a twinkle in the eye. Closest I got to a homeland is my mama's Caucasian pitch on the phone calling the police. Closest I got to a homeland is not never calling the police. Closest I got to a homeland is my daddy's laugh in a spades game. Closest I got to a homeland is my lover's tongue talking or otherwise. Closest I got to a homeland is the funk under a DJ's needle in my hand full of a dance partner. Not to be dark, but I am. Not to be dark, but the planet is on fire. Not to be dark, but they move in capitals because the water is coming up. Not to be dark, but our bones are in that water too. Maybe that's my capital. Once the polar capitals melt and there's a whole lot less land for folks to buy and sell and steal, maybe everybody will feel a little more dark, will feel a little more homelandless like we do. Why you think I call my compatriots homies? Maybe ain't no home except for how your beloveds cuss or pray or pronounce. The line that really stuck with me, Nate Marshall, is closest I got to a homeland is my mama's Caucasian pitch on the phone calling the police. Will will you expound on that image for me? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, and perhaps like, particularly people of color, like will be familiar with this notion of code switching, right? So the sense that one, when they're talking to either folks outside of the community or folks that exist in a different at a higher level of the sort of power structure um, that you have to literally talk differently, right? Both in your diction, but also in your tone, right? And for me, like one of the first real clear examples I had of this was being a kid, there was a sense and it was, it was like a thing that was spoken in our family and in the community that like, if you needed to call the police, you use a particular tone of voice, right? And, and also like sometimes you intentionally misreport things to try and like shape how they might respond, right? Because there was a real sense like, oh, will police respond slower to black communities? And then when they do respond, they respond with a kind of like brute force. You know, I, I remember even seeing folks like, um, you know, cause there's a lot of things, particularly in black communities where when you call 911, they just automatically dispatch police. And so I've seen people like misreport things intentionally in order to try to like stop that from happening. So if someone is injured in some, you know, like because of a fight or, you know, something like that, saying, oh, someone had a heart attack so that they don't send the police, right? Because the police exist as a sort of force of like escalation and as another source of potential violence. I I note, Nate, that 
Colorado is reckoning with the deaths of Elijah McLean in Aurora. There in Colorado Springs, the death of Devon Bailey. And meanwhile, we know that people of color are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Does this moment in America feel to you like a watershed or does it feel to you like more of the same? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that may in some ways, like you're better positioned to answer that question. Right. I think that there is a kind of raising of consciousness right now, but I don't think that consciousness raising is happening in the communities that I exist in and where I'm from. Right. Like I knew that the police, you know, were a violent force. I, I know that black people have, I'm from one of the communities in Chicago that has the highest infant mortality rate in the city. Right. Like that has an infant mortality rate that would, that would look more like a developing nation, right. Than the United States of America. And so like, these things are not new to me. They're not revelations. I think that what's happening now is you, I think you're seeing white people and people from more privileged backgrounds having to reckon with the fact of these things. Right. But, you know, mm. no. It's a bit of a wait and see, I suppose, to see what might actually change in daily life. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not waiting. I don't. I'm, in some ways, perhaps less optimistic than I should be or than other folks are. But I mean, what I say is, I do think that there is a kind of reckoning happening now, and and that's interesting to me to observe and to consider but it's just not my reckoning. And so like how it plays out and what comes out of it, I have like less to say about than the folks that are doing it. You also make music in addition to poetry. So I'd love to wrap up with a taste of your musicianship. You're featured on this track by Sean Peace. It's called Mistakes. Do you want to say a few words before we hear you in, in this environment? Yeah. Sean is like one of my oldest friends. Uh, we went to elementary school together, actually. But I, I don't know. We we kind of put this song together. And I think in a lot of ways, it feels akin to the book, right? Because I, I mean, we did make this song as I was writing the book. And I think it does have this sense of like, the necessity for folks and especially men to like reckon with, you know, the mistakes that we make in life and the ways in which we fall short. But I'm not good That's the kind of thing that's difficult to say Good, but I'm not great Every time I get close, I be getting in my way My self-care is a long bath Baptism in the guilt of a long past My self-care is embarrassment Researching and reading on all these therapists My self-care don't include follow-through Hiding in the house couple days in pajama shoes Some call me activist, some call me scholar too Some never called after all, that's the hardest truth Love looking like my granddad did He got Alzheimer's and his mind is loose And I should probably stop for we get that big But sometimes I wouldn't mind so forgetful too A lot of mistakes Nate Marshall is a poet, playwright, editor, rapper And assistant English professor at Colorado College in Colorado Springs His latest collection is called Finna A note that Colorado College holds the license for KRCC Which is part of Colorado Public Radio 
As an emergency physician, Dr. Shannon Sovendal sees just how fragile life is, including his own. And he thinks the pandemic is a chance for all of us to get acquainted with that fragility. His memoir is called Fragile. It's about his unusual path to becoming a doctor and the sort of headspace you have to be in to constantly encounter people on the worst days of their lives. We spoke in August. It's a 2020 favorite. Dr. Sevendal, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. You are in the emergency department at Boulder Community Health. And there's a phrase, almost a mantra, in your life and in this book, this isn't my emergency. Tell us about the importance of that line for an ER doc. Yeah, I mean, I think that line comes very early on in your training. You know, if you're taking care of a patient, you're not totally sure what you're doing when you're learning. There'll be an attending behind you kind of whispering in your ear, telling you what your next move is, you know, to take care of this patient. And you're pretty amped up by it. And really what they keep telling you is like, calm down. It's not your emergency. It's their emergency. You're breathing fine. Your heart's doing fine. It's their problem. And really that kind of sticks with you throughout your career because no matter what kind of you know, horrific situations happening or chaos is happening in the ER, you just stay calm. You're like, hey, this isn't my emergency. I'm just managing the problem. You open the book with a patient, a kid, whose emergency you could easily picture as your own because you you could imagine your own child in his shoes. Um, You must have seen countless pediatric cases in your career. Why do you think this one that you wrote about in the book stands out? Yeah, certain cases do stick with you, and it's your headspace when you're taking care of them. And certainly I have two sons at the time of this case that were, you know, similar in age, and it was very easy to identify, you know, this child with my kids and the way that my kids look, especially when I go home. And then the other piece of it is you do see a lot of cases, and I think you put a lot of them out of your mind just for self-preservation. You know, I was talking with a nurse about this the other day that she asked me if I remembered a case that we had together and I didn't, I didn't really didn't remember it. And it was because I think you just see so much trauma that you do have to mitigate it. You, you can't take it all in. There's a scene from your memoir that stands out to me. It's a, about an aspect of your job I hadn't really considered. Let me have you read from page 186. The hardest part of a full trauma resuscitation isn't what you think. It's not the patient. It's controlling all these people. It becomes loud and sometimes unruly. They know they are supposed to be quiet, but when you put that many people together, with the added excitement of a full trauma arriving, things can escalate quickly. Small noises and quiet talking often build, like they do when you're in a restaurant with a large dinner party. The sound in the trauma bay ramps up, not because people are trying to be loud, but because of the number of people giddy with doing their job. Keeping a handle on the room is key. Managing the volume level in... An ER suite is not something I'd considered. Is that something you deal with every day? Yeah, I think it's it's difficult for all healthcare providers, really, in emergent situations. So EMS and fire departments, they have to deal with this as well. And I always use the mantra for them that there's three things that you have to be good at when you do this job. The first is clinical knowledge. The second is technical skill. And the third is situational control. And the situational control is what we're talking about here. It's keeping the team working in the direction that you want them going. And it, it is kind of the, the, the fog of war, the chaos that happens when things start to go crazy. You need to keep everybody on track, focused in the right direction, doing what you want them to do. In the case of that young boy who is really emblazoned in your mind, his mother was also there. And there were occasions when it was possible to make eye contact with her. That has to add a whole 
different level. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I talk about that in, in that section of the book, you know, how difficult that is. You, you know, you feel that energy and that force from someone watching their child, you know, literally dying in front of them. And I'm in that space between them. And, and I, you don't really want to be there. <laughs> you know, it's it's um, it took a long time for me to come to terms with that as well, because I felt, you know, like I wasn't good at my job or that I wasn't, you know, dealing with it appropriately because it affected me so. But that's just natural to feel that way. The boy indeed died. And I understand that you visit his grave. What goes through your mind when you're there? Probably not what, what you think. It's uh, It gives me a little calm. It kind of is, uh, you know, reset button. It's outside. I sit down. I can listen to the birds chirping, see the clouds floating across the sky, hear my own breathing. And it's kind of like a Zen moment where you can kind of just zero in and hone back into to yourself and your soul. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And... My guest is Boulder emergency physician, Dr. Shannon Sovendahl. His new memoir is called Fragile, Beauty in Chaos, Grace in Tragedy, and the Hope that Lives in Between. As I said in the introduction, you believe the COVID-19 pandemic is an opportunity for the rest of us to confront some of the realities that frontline healthcare workers encounter every day. That is namely our own fragility. Why do you think that's something we should better understand about ourselves? Well, the first thing, when you read that title, you know, what I was hoping to get across with the subtitles, this isn't a sad, depressing book. You know, this is actually a book of hope. And the reason for that is because as you experience trauma and these terrible things that occur in life and they will recur in every person's life, like there is not, you can't avoid this. And coming to terms with the fact that this is part of the cycle of life, it really opens up everything. And it, it's what allows me to really be connected with my kids, with my wife, to truly feel love and, and all of these things that I cherish. I need to have the the feeling of being fragile to get that. And so you know, healthcare providers see that on a regular basis. And I come home and I'm, I'm thinking about this every day. And then we have the pandemic. And with the pandemic, it's not something that, you know, just two people in the U.S. can talk about, but it's across the entire world, people are experiencing this sense that what we felt five months ago is different today. And, you know, that pandemic is terrible, but really this just, again, proves that, you know, we are not in control of, of, of our lives here. We are on for the ride, and the ride is going to go up and down, and we need to experience all of that in order to, you know, feel the full range of emotion. I know that suicide rates are really high among first responders, among emergency workers. Doesn't that have a lot to do with the struggle around being fragile? I mean, so much of your job demands that you be steely, not fragile. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, this is it's truly a, a huge problem for first responders and, you know, healthcare workers that we do have these high rates of PTSD, anxiety, suicide. And that is because of this kind of constant bombardment with stress and, and trauma. And we're seeing that on a regular basis. And, you know, I like to use the analogy that, you know, it can suck you in like a black hole if you let these emotions get the, the most of you and, and you can't get out, you can't escape. But if you can figure out how to just stay right on that event horizon and not get sucked into that depth, that is truly what opens everything up for me. That is what allows me to, again, fully enjoy the little moments with my children, watching them swing on a swing or the dog fetching a ball or my wife, you know, across the room at a cocktail party. Like those connections happen because of the flip side, what happens in that, that black hole. You did not start out wanting to be a doctor. 
Although, as a kid, you would operate on your stuffed animals, so maybe there, maybe it was always there to some <laughs> Destiny, extent. Destiny, yeah. <laughs> but you wanted to be a fighter pilot, and you started at the Air Force Academy, ended up leaving. Explain what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my dream wasn't to be a fighter pilot like every little boy's dream, you know, after they saw Top Gun. I mean, I was really <laughs> determined to be a fighter pilot, and I, from a very early age, I was focused on that goal. All through high school, I was focused on that goal, um, and I ended up going to the Air Force Academy, and, and while I was there, I lost my pilot qualification. At the time, if you didn't have perfect vision, you could they would say you're not going to be a pilot, period. There's no corrective vision that you can have for this, and I was devastated in it, and I left just because I was devastated, and... That really shaped my life because that feeling of quitting, of leaving something that I was, you know, was a goal just burned inside of me for the rest of my life. And to this day, I still fight with that sense of quitting and the how ashamed I feel that I didn't stick it out and all of those things. And really, though, it's given me fuel to the fire to get through medicine, to, to have the career that I currently have and all the things that I've done is because I never want to have that sense again where I didn't follow through or I, or I quit. It's interesting how you frame that. It sounds like you're still really hard on yourself. You didn't really quit. It's that your ultimate goal was impossible given your vision, right? And that's not the case anymore, by the way. They allow corrective eyewear. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, I'm, I am hard on myself. And, you know, what I try to do uh, in life is is really be honest with myself. And, you know, you can make up a story that makes it sound good. But, you know, I was there. I, I experienced it. I wasn't forced to leave the Air Force Academy. I chose to leave there. You know, I could have stayed. I could have still been a doctor through the Air Force Academy. Um, but I chose to leave because I was devastated and I couldn't mentally cope with the fact that I wasn't going to reach my goal. It was like, you know, like a three-year-old having a temper tantrum. I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this. And so, yeah, I'm hard on myself. But I think that that's uh, what I always call is the mirror tester and my pillow test. You know, when I go to bed at night, there's no one there to prove your story to. It's just you. It's just your own story in your head. And you better be able to close your eyes and go to sleep with that story, uh, you know, not try to candy coat it or, or make it sound better to you. When you decided to go to medical school, even to prepare for the entrance exam, the MCAT, you had catching up to do. Uh, and I gather it's your experience dedicating time each day to a goal like that uh, that eventually informed something called the 300-second challenge. What is the 300-second challenge that you created? Yeah, so the 300-second challenge is 300 seconds represents five minutes. Okay. And every day, I believe that you should commit 300 seconds to your dream or your end goal. And the reason that 300 seconds is valuable or the five minutes is because it's absolutely doable. So we hear from Malcolm Gladwell and these other writers, they say, okay, 10,000 hours to be great. Yeah. Absolutely, you need to commit a huge amount of time to become great. But the problem is we're all human and we all get distracted by everyday things. I'm tired. I got sick. I have to go to the grocery store. All of these things interrupt our direction to be great. And so what the 300 challenge does and that 300 second rule does is it's a tool to get you back on track because every day I can commit that five minutes. And if I don't commit the five minutes, it's really because I lacked the fortitude and strength to do it. it there was no other excuse. So if I come home and it's midnight and I got to get up at four in the morning to go back to work, I can say, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. I'm not going to do my five minutes. But really, there's no difference in your life if you went to bed at 12 or 12.05. If I do this every day and I focus on this five minutes, it keeps me on track towards that end goal and it keeps me focused to get where I want to be. 300 seconds. 
Dr. Shannon Sovendahl is my guest. His new book is called Fragile. He's an emergency physician in Boulder. You write in the book that there are three basic types of ER patients, those who live regardless of your intervention, those who will die regardless, and those who will live or die depending on, you know, what kind of a job you do. I mean, I guess that's something you had to get acquainted with, that you had a lot of power, but you only had so much power, you know? Yeah, and I mean, it is it is obviously a key moment when you have these patients, you know, we train our whole life to be that number, th- that third option, right? That how well I do my job is going to determine this patient's outcome. And so I think about that every day. When I go to work every day, you know, I, I do suit up and say, hey, I have to be on my game today because this matters. You know, my, um, you know, I'll, I'll throw this out there that my daughter had open heart surgery. And when I was looking at the surgeon, you know, prior to the surgery, I was hoping that he had his game face on. You know, I was hoping that he didn't, have a tie one on the night before or go to a barbecue till late. You know, I was hoping that he was prepping for this. So um, I think that we always do that in our work. We get ready for the, the job that we have to do. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, great to be here. Dr. Shannon Sovendahl is an emergency physician at Boulder Community Health. His new memoir is Fragile, Beauty and Chaos, Grace and Tragedy, and the Hope that Lives in Between. He's also the host of a medical podcast called Match on a Fire. We spoke in August. By the way, each chapter of his new book starts with a song title, a tune that was on his mind as he was writing. We'll wrap up with one of them, Good Life, from Colorado's One Republic. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Shalsada. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks today to Michael Elizabeth Sackis. It's CPR News. <laughs> <laughs>